Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with recovery advocate Tim Ryan. Tim is best known for his A&E show, Dope Man, but he's also a renowned public speaker, best-selling author, founder of A Man in Recovery, and business developer at the treatment program, A Better Life in Recovery. Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. Jonathan, thank you for having me on your show. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, Tim, I I was reading a little bit about you, a little bit about your background. Man, you are literally a walking miracle. You've overdosed eight times. You've suffered multiple heart attacks. You've been pronounced dead three times. Tell us what was going on and how you eventually ended up getting sober. What was going on was a absolute denial in my own mind that I was an alcoholic and drug addict. You know, I'm 51 years old now. My first time in treatment was 1990. Um, I was 21 years old. And, you know, I don't know how deep you want to go. I didn't come from a bad family. You know, we, we grew up in the northern suburbs of Illinois in a town called Crystal Lake. We grew up on a lake. My grandfather happened to build the first houses on that lake. And my dad bought one back after he lost him during the Depression. And my dad worked the Chicago Board of Trade for 26 years. Never missed a day of work. We had dinner every night at 6.30. But <clears throat> until I got sober and actually saw a gentleman by the name of Dr. Gabor Mate speak, yeah. At an event, he's uh, been working with people that struggle with addiction for 40 years. And uh, he said something that really shocked me. He said, you know, to him, the diseases and choices, you can throw all that out the window. It all has to do with trauma and, and pain. And I'm like, I don't have any trauma in my life. And then he asked mm-hmm. how many people were adopted. Well, I was adopted. Um, then I started looking at my life. I was a kid that, uh, I was a stupid kid, 1.4 grade average, 11 on his ACT. I took it five times, you know, I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, but I was not interested in school. My older brother beat me up all the time. I was molested by a babysitter at 10 years old. And when I grew up though, the drinking age in Wisconsin was still 18. So my best friend, Randy was a senior in high school. I was a freshman wear blonde hair, blue eyes. My world was water skiing. I lived on a lake. I was one of the top ranked uh, barefoot water skiers in the country from 14 to 21. I show skied, I three event skied. But we were going up to Wisconsin drinking as a freshman in high school. Okay. Um, I can remember graduating high school. My dad had a case of beer. Nobody was getting DUIs. There was no consequences. But out of high school, I went to college. And I don't know how I got in. They had open admissions. I went to college in Louisiana because they had the best intercollegiate water ski team in the country at uh, Northeast Louisiana. 
I never got on the water ski team. I, I barely went to class. And that's when I really opened Pandora's box into hallucinogenics, magic mushrooms. We could go pick magic mushrooms. I mean, it was, right. it was a whole nother world. The drinking age was still 18, kicked out of college back. And, and then I got into odd jobs and started hanging with an older gentleman that had the cocaine hookup. And we started dealing cocaine. I started freebasing cocaine. And at 21, I checked myself into treatment. But when I went into treatment, I went in with the thought pattern. I just want to quit doing drugs and I want to figure out how to drink like a normal person. And I like treatment. I went through the motions. I can remember him coming in three weeks after I was in and saying, well, your father's insurance is cut out. And sign here, you know, it's only $15,000 and you need to be here. And you know, I stayed, I got out, I went to meetings, I started some businesses, I started competing in water skiing, life was good. But I'm the guy that would go to meetings and think I could get sober through osmosis. Okay. You know, yeah. I'd put my hand up and say, I'm looking for a sponsor, nobody would pick on me. And I'd be like, yes, I got away with it again. <laughs> and then, you know, it was back to injured my back, prescribed opiates, water skiing, and I, I went back to smoking weed, back to drinking and cocaine, and the cycle just went. Okay. And I bounced in and out of, anytime there was pain, financial crisis, I'd go to meetings. I, mm. I started a, a company marketing cable television door to door, and at 22, I made my first million. Wow. I lost it by 23 because, you know, I was giving my drug dealer $20,000 a month to bring me an ounce of cocaine every day. And, you know, every time I thought I could make money, I thought I could drink it and use and back to Chicago. And I ultimately stumbled into the recruiting space as a headhunter. And then I went to work at a management consulting firm. I met my uh, first wife, Shannon there, and she had a three-year-old son by the name of Nick. And I can remember us going on a date. And I actually took her down to the bar because that's why I'd interview everyone. I'd, I'd sit at the bar and drink all day. But I took her down there and she went to the bathroom. She came out, I gave her a kiss and I said, you're my new girlfriend. And she said, I'd like that, but I have one question to ask you. Do you do drugs? And I said, no, why? And she said, well, I have a three-year-old son, Nicholas, whose father's an alcoholic and a drug addict who abandoned us. And I want nothing to do with anyone that does drugs. And I said, I don't do drugs. She said, great, let's go on another date. Uh, she went home to Naperville. I went to Chicago and bought a quarter ounce of cocaine because everything that came out of my mouth was a lie. Mm -hmm. Five months later, found out she was pregnant. So I did the right thing. I married her. I adopted Nick. We had Max Tanner and ultimately Abby. But um, it took, Max was 14 months old. Nick was six. And she was pregnant with Tanner. And, uh, you know, my wife finally realized that she's living with a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict. And yeah. I'd been on a cocaine bender. And I had a home office. And I woke up the next morning. And my son, Max, who was 14 months old, was crawling towards my home office. And I picked him up and put him back in his playroom. And my door pushed right open. And there was cocaine all over the floor. If my son would have crawled in and put one of those rocks in his mouth, it would have killed him. So... What's my MO? Back to meetings. This time I got about 14 months sober, kind of got a sponsor, kind of worked the steps. My neighbor and I uh, were manage, uh, running uh, 35 Cub Scout dens. We're pack masters. Shan and I were building a beautiful five-bedroom house. I started another consulting firm. Life was really good, mm. but I'd never built the foundation. 
and I met a guy, Joel, at one of the meetings. We started hanging out. He asked me a couple weeks later to take him to Chicago to move out of his apartment, which I did because I'm the nice people pleaser and don't know how to say no. Roommate Saba pops out of the bedroom and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm moving out. Joel, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing heroin. You want to try some? And Okay, sure. I'm 14 months clean, but I had no foundation. And I started one bag of heroin. And that was it, game on. And I, I don't glorify it, but sure. I thought that's what I was looking for. And this is 2001. Okay. And, you know, about a year later, I, I got hooked up with a, a very high-end drug dealer with a, a very powerful street gang in Chicago. And I lived a double life because I, you know, I'm, I'm working with all these management consulting firms and companies like Canagra Foods and you know, multi-billion dollar companies and, and I'm doing heroin every day. Mm. And about a year in, I'm at my drug dealer Ray's place and uh, bought a bunch of heroin. He said, Timmy, get in the car. And he drives me downtown Chicago. He pulls up to a well street and he said, you see that red door? I said, yeah, so you get out and walk through it. And I said, what's that? He said, Timmy, uh, that's a methadone clinic. He said, look, I'm a drug dealer. I'm a bad man, but I like you. And you're buying way too many drugs and you're not going to die on my watch. Wow. You need to go get on methadone. So wow. I started all the heroin and I went and got on methadone. I called my wife and I said, hey, you know, I'm cured. I've been doing heroin the past year. And then she started putting two and two together. That's why you were sick all the time. And in this and that, I mean, my poor wife was researching the internet on why is my husband getting profusely sick every three weeks and a day later, he's miraculously fine. I was dope sick. So I got on methadone and I remember asking the doctor, is this addictive? He's like, absolutely not. You can quit any time. I got up to about, I don't know, 80 milligrams about four months in and it was my son Max's seventh birthday party. And I'd stepped on a toy car and I went ballistic. And my wife said, you've got to get off this. I called Ray. I said, how do I get off? He said, come on down to Chicago. Let's get you back on heroin. And that's exactly what I did. And wow. then I tried Suboxone in 02. And what started happening was I, I started getting consequences. I got my second DUI. I didn't drive for three years. Uh, but unbeknownst to me, you could have got a blow and go. I didn't know any of this. A week before I used to get my license back, I drove one time. I got pulled over by uh, the chief of police in Blue Island, Illinois, off duty in his pickup truck for not using a turn signal. So I get my first driving on revoke. I now lose my license for two more years. I got a case of the efforts and I kept driving. Two weeks later, I got pulled over in Chicago by Officer White. Now I was a slick drug addict. I would wear a business suit or a sport jacket and a tie because I'm in the west side of Chicago. And back then it was not a nice area. And Officer White pulls me over. He said, what are you doing? And I said, sir, I work for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm on a 12-step based colony. And he <laughs> starts laughing. He goes, you idiot. Nobody works for Alcoholics Anonymous. They're a, a volunteer program. You're going to buy heroin. I said, no, I'm not. Wow. And I said, search me. So he wrote me two tickets. And he said, you can leave now, but I'm going to give you two bits of advice. He said, A, quit driving a car, Tim, because they're going to put you in prison. And he said, get yourself some help for your drug addiction, because mm. I know you got one. That got me 30 days in Cook County Jail. Six months later, I picked up another driving on Revoke in Plainfield, Illinois, another 30 days in Will County Jail. And two months later, I got pulled over in Chicago again in a different car in a different part of town by who? Officer White. There's 
three and a half million people in Chicago, he gets pulled over by the same cop twice, eight months apart in two different cars. I do. Yeah. And he came up to the car and he remembered me. And he's like, I told you to quit driving. And he, he's going to let me go. And he came back. He said, Tim, this is a felony. I have to take you. But see, that was God throwing me a life raft. And I didn't grab on. Mm. That got me my first year in prison. I was sentenced January 25th of 2008 on my wife's birthday. Happy birthday. I'm going to prison. They give you a year, but you do 61 days and they release you. I remember they offered me six months in county jail, but I have to do in Cook County jail, but I have to do the whole time or I take the year. And then you're out 61 days, but you're a felon. I said, I'll, I'll become a felon. I can remember going to prison though. And they hold you in Northern Illinois Receiving Center till they ship you to one of 28 prisons. I was sent down to Vienna and Southern Illinois. Once I was able to call home, I would call home and on the caller ID, it would come up prison. And I can remember my wife saying to my kids, hey, your father's calling from the prison hotel in India. Would you like to talk to him? Because you surely don't tell your four kids that their hero father's an alcoholic and a drug addict who can't stop driving cars. Yeah. You know, and I'll never forget that. And I can remember getting back, getting out of prison. And uh, my wife sat me down and she said, Tim, you know, while you were incarcerated, I applied for a Dunham scholarship to go to nursing school and I was selected number one. I got a full ride in. I said, Shannon, you don't need to work. I make plenty of money. She said, Tim, the way you're living, you're going to end up in two places. You're going to end up in prison or you're going to end up dead and we have four kids and I can't rely on you. And she was right. Uh, a couple weeks later, I started another executive search firm. The market was really hot. I made a ton of money. I had an office downtown Chicago in the Wrigley Building on Michigan Avenue. I went right back to using because Ray's wife had died from an overdose while I was locked up, and I wanted to go visit my friend. And yeah. next thing, I'm back using. Mm -hmm. um, and then fast forward to December 16th of 2010, I drove one more time. I overdosed while driving. I hit two cars. I put four people in the hospital. Um, I was dead on the scene. It took five shots in Arcan to, to get a pulse to mainline it in to bring me back. Here's how sick I was. Um, I spent a week in jail. And this happened December 16th. December 23rd, I finally manipulated my mom and wife into putting up the bail money to get me out. I walk out of Cook County Jail at about two in the morning. My wife had been waiting 10 hours for me to get bailed out. Yeah. We drove home, pulled into our garage. I walked into my office and those famous words came out of my mouth, I'm sorry. And my wife said, Tim, you're sorried out. She said, I'm going to bed. We'll talk in the morning. And when she went to walk away, I said, Shannon, do you happen to know where my glasses are? Because when the airbag went off, um, I lost them. And she said, yeah. I went down to the van. She said, your glasses are on the desk. Your coat is hanging in the closet. And as she turned to walk away, she said, oh, good job, Father of the Year. You do know all the kids' Christmas presents were hidden in the back of the van and half of them are missing. She walked away. I got my glasses. I went to my coat. I opened my coat pocket. There was the five grams of heroin the cops never found. I went right back to use them because that's wow. what addicts do. Yeah, I remember that Christmas morning, the kids opening whatever gifts they had. I had to hop a cab to Chicago to buy more heroin. Monday, I went and retained the best lawyer. And in my delusional thinking, I said, let's beat this bitch. I said, they never got blood or urine. And that's how 
sick I was. My lawyer looked me dead in the eyes. He said, Tim, you're not beating anything. This is your third DUI aggravated. It's mm. your fifth driving on revoke. They found the spoon and syringe. They charged you with possession of drugs. He said, you're going to prison. It's just a matter of how long. And I got to a point where I had a gun and I was going to blow my head off. But I was raised Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic now. <laughs> I'm not knocking that. But, you know, being a Catholic, yeah. going to CCD and all this crap. Sure. It was a crazy religion because you got to go to confession. Hey, I broke out Mrs. Mary's house windows. Okay, give me five Our Fathers and five Hail Marys and everything will be good. But if you sin, you're going to hell. You're going to rot in purgatory. So I was afraid of God. But then I thought, if there is a heaven or hell of purgatory, I don't want to rot there. So I just went back to use it. I fought my case for 21 months. In the midst of fighting my case, now everybody knows Tim Ryan's a heroin addict. And about three months in, I'm really dope sick. I'm taking a hot bath, and my 17-year-old son, Nick, walks in the bathroom. And with Nick, I was a friend. I was not a father. Nick and I were best friends. And if I could go back in time and change things, I would. But I was a dad that let Nick and his buddies smoke weed in the basement, drink. We occasionally tripped on an acid together. And Nick walks in. He said, hey, what's wrong, Pops? And I said, what do you think, you idiot? I'm dope sick. And he said, not anymore, Dad. Today's your lucky day. And he threw two bags of heroin on the bathroom counter. Wow. And I got out of the tub and I did them. And I felt good instantly. And I went to Nick's room and I said, Nick, what in the hell are you doing? He said, don't worry, Dad, I'm just selling a little bit. I said, you need to shut this down immediately. You know what this drug has done to me. And my son looked right at me and he said, well, dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why would you say that? Well, we've got a nice house. You got an office in the Wrigley building. You make a good living. In Nick's delusional mind, he thought I was successful because I functioned. Mm. Three months later, I caught him doing heroin and we started using heroin together. That's ultimately how my now 18-year-old son and I bonded was getting together every day. Um, that lasted about, I don't know, a year. And then on October 30th, of 2012, Judge Wada sentenced me to seven years in the Illinois Department of Corrections. Um, when I walked into prison, I weighed 158 pounds. I skin and bone, I was walking death. I was drinking upwards of a gallon of vodka a day and shooting five grams of heroin. Um, I, that's where I found my surrender. I mean, my sick thinking too, I snuck 50 bags of heroin into Cook County Jail with me because I didn't want to be dope sick and I wanted to see the doctor. I left my wife with nothing. I left her with a house in foreclosure, four kids, and she needed to fend for herself. And my wife graduated nursing school, three years, top of her class, while working full-time, raising four kids and dealing with me. Do you think I showed up to her graduation? Nope. Nah, I was uh, dope sick. You know, yeah. that's where this disease takes you. And I left Shannon and the kids with nothing. I did a few days in Cook County Jail, which I really don't remember. And then I was transferred back to Northern Illinois Receiving Center and uh, I was sick really bad. It, uh, I defecated and vomited myself for two weeks straight. Um, I did not sleep a wink for a month. And about two weeks in, I looked up and I said, God, higher power, Allah, Buddha, Fred, whatever's out there, please take away this obsession and compulsion. I swear I will turn my own life over to you. And please let me get into Sheridan Prison. And the next day I was transferred to Sheridan Prison. 
There's 28 prisons in Illinois at that time. There was two with therapeutic drug treatment programs, and by the grace of God, I get into Sheridan. And I promise you, when I got through the gates to Sheridan Prison, this relief fell over me because the way they ran my case, I got seven years, but I got three for my third DUI, three for the fifth driving on revoke, and one for the spoon and syringe. So I only have to do the top number three. They automatically cut it in half because I wasn't a violent offender. I'm going to do a year and a half. I can do that. But I didn't realize in Sheridan, since it's a therapeutic program, for every 90 days you do in the therapeutic community, they take 30 days off your sentence. Okay. So I ended up doing 13 and a half months, but I did 30 days in the SAG, and then they put you in orientation hall, and then I was able to get in that about 12 little buildings, and you wanted to get in those versus having 200 people in one hall. I got into this building, C21. And I can remember walking over there, guy helped me carry my box, and and I walk into my cell, and there's this big black guy sitting on the bunk reading an AA big book. Hmm. And I walk into the cell, and I said, hey, man, how you doing? He looks up at me like I bothered him. And he's like, hey, Whitey, you into recovery? I said, yeah, why? He said, because if not, brother, you ain't coming in this cell, because that's all we do in here. I said, I'm into recovery. He said, hey, I'm Big Perk. I said, hey, Big Perk, I'm Tim. He looks at me again. He goes, Tim, I think I'm going to call you Powder. I said, you can call me whatever <laughs> you want. Uh, Big Perk was a, a gang chief with the conservative vice lords on the west side of Chicago for okay. 25 years. Wow. Uh, he'd been to prison 10 times. He'd spent 23 years total incarcerated. That man helped save my life. He is one of my best friends to this day because we never got a TV. I wasn't in prison to do push-ups for noodles and get swole. We did group three hours a day, five days a week in the morning. You can go to Chow. We had yard for 45 minutes. Park and I would walk the yard, have a meeting. We'd sit in the day room at night and have a meeting. Otherwise, why we were in our cell, we went through the big book. We went through the steps, studied the NA basic text, read the Bible. I read about three, 400 books, Tony Robbins, Napoleon Hill, we actually wrote the business plan for the nonprofit. I started a man and recovery foundation in that cell. I knew wow. I was done using. And uh, my wife brought two of my kids to visit me every two weeks. I watched the corn grow, get cut down and grow again. We lost our house in foreclosure. So my wife and four kids had to move 20 miles away to grandma's house. My kids had to change schools because of me. I made plenty of money but I neglected everything due to my alcoholism and drug addiction. My worst fear was my son, Nick, was going to die while I was in prison. Yeah, yeah. He had OD'd two more times, was in treatment, I think, twice, jail a couple times. And uh, my wife divorced me in prison um, after being 18 years together. I can remember it was Father's Day of 2013, and I called that morning, it was a Sunday. And I said, Shannon, are you bringing two of the kids a visit? She said, yeah, but I need to let you know something, Tim, I sent you a package. And I'm like, cool, what'd you send me? Magazines? And she said, no, I sent you divorce papers. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'll tell you though, she came to visit me and we talked about things and what are we gonna do? And uh, she still kept coming. And that lady, um, She's one of my dear friends to this day, and, and she had every right to divorce me. I put her through Helen back, but she didn't need to do what she needed. She didn't need to come visit me every two weeks still. And 
upon <clears throat> my release, she said, Tim, your mom's willing to help. We have three options. Um, she'll rent us a house and we can all cohabitate together. She said, I don't think that's a good idea. She said, she'll rent a house for you and the kids. Um, so you can do that because even in my addiction, my kids were my world, um, which is kind of crazy, but I ran Cub Scouts, but I was, you know, just high on heroin all the time. Or she said, you can get your own place. And I said, Shannon, I need to put recovery first. So help find me a little place. So her and my mom found a little townhouse in Naperville, Illinois. So I could walk to the Allen Oak Club. I could walk to the train to go to work and I could walk downtown to go grocery shopping. Here today, I've not had a driver's license in 18 years. I actually get it back this December. My last DUI, I lost it for 10 years. So I got this little townhouse. My mom said, the rent's paid for three months. I'll put a hundred bucks a week in your account. You're on your own. As soon as my parole agent came, I was in a meeting. I uh, got another sponsor, went through the steps again. Uh, about three weeks out, I got a job back in the technology space. And people say, are you willing to go to any length to get sober? I took a train, the 6 a.m. train down to Chicago, which was about an hour. I walked to Ogilvy train station. I took another train out to Palatine, Illinois, which was an hour. And I took a bus to work about 15 minutes. I commuted two hours and 15 minutes each way to work five days a week. I was back every night for the eight o'clock meeting. Saturday morning, I met my sponsor at 6 a.m. Uh, Sunday morning, I did a 7.30 a.m. walking meeting. Man, and I've about, got some uh, some sponsees that need to hear about still I'm making that you, eight o'clock meeting. <laughs> One of the things I did when I, I got out, my Shannon and, and the first night I got out, Shannon, Max, Tanner, and Abby, all my kids came over and we had Portillo's, hot dogs, and Italian beefs. And I sat down with my family and I said, look, you guys need to understand something. I love you guys more than anything, but the most important thing in my life is my recovery. And I need to put my recovery first before each and every one of you. And a couple of them were mad, but today, over seven years sober, they understand why I had to do what I needed to do. I needed, for me, it was easy to stay sober in prison but the rubber meets the road when you walk out. Right, yeah. And a couple months later, um, three, three months out of work, and I called my mom and I said, you know, I don't wanna be in the technology space. I was a headhunter, I have no passion. I wanna help people. And I had started the first Heroin Anonymous meeting in DuPage County. And two weeks in, a 20-year-old kid comes up to me, says, why well, take benzos? Can I come to your meeting? I said, sure. Two weeks later, a mother came with her daughter and said, I hear you operate differently. Can I sit in on your meeting? I said, sure, but I had an epiphany. One, I call an opiate recovery group and I'll have the family members come with the person struggling at the same time. Oh, wow. And, and you come to my meeting, you're talking because I can't help you if I don't know what's going on. And then it grew and I ran one Monday night in Dixon, Illinois, 100 miles from my house. Tuesday night in Streeter, Illinois, 100 miles away. Wednesday night in Princeton, 90 miles away. Thursday night in Naperville and Friday night in DeKalb, Illinois, which was about 40 miles away. I did that for two and a half years. Plus, I went to my own meetings and I called my mom and said, I want to borrow 15 grand and set up this nonprofit. And she said, I have one question to ask you. I said, what's that? She said, are you going to pay me back this time? And I said, yeah. She said, the money will be in your bank tomorrow. I quit my job. I lived on part of the money and uh, got lawyers and accountants and set up a man recovery foundation. Wow. And I thought 
I would raise all this money, pay myself 40 grand a year and save the world. And I got in another relationship with a gal I met in a meeting and went through a divorce. And she tells me she's like, you've got to be shitting me. I'm, you know, I'm 48 years old at the time. And I uh, kept her around. Mackenzie came around. But on my 21-month sobriety date, eight months out of prison, August 1st of 2014, Shannon, my former wife, called me at six in the morning and said, Tim, get out of bed. I'm going to pick you up in about five minutes. Nick overdosed again. And I don't share this part of the story a lot. And when I got out of treatment, Nick was in treatment one more time. Then he went back to jail and he was 40. He got out of jail seven days prior and Shannon picked him up and took him to lunch and fed him and said, we're done. You're not coming to my house. You're not coming to dad's. Oh, my girlfriend and I got it figured out. So Shannon called me and said, Nick overdosed. And she picked me up at about 6.15 and we shot, we're driving to the hospital. And I took my iPhone and I plugged it into her phone charger and a song by the band 6AM came on. Nikki Six's band, he wrote it in conjunction with his book, The Heroin Diaries. And the song is called Courtesy Call. And it's about somebody overdosing and dying in a hotel room. And I unplugged the phone right away and Shan and I drove in silence. Now she's the nurse. And she said, Tim, they said he's unresponsive. This doesn't look good. And uh, we got to the hospital and we ran into the emergency room. Tim and Shannon Ryan here to see our son Nicholas, he overdosed. And 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. I knew instantly my son was dead. Um, and I'll ask people, what was my next thought? And most people say, you want to go get high, you want to use. No, my next thought was, I'll be at a meeting that night. Hmm. And they took us in a room and the doctor, doctor came in and do you know your son was struggling with addiction and yeah and she said he didn't make it and Shannon kind of collapsed in my arms and I sat her down in there consoling her and they took me down the hall and I, I walked into this room where my son's lifeless body was and he had been dead about four and a half hours he was cold he was blue he was aspirating and you know that was the uh by far the hardest day of my life because for a long time, you know, I, I set this road, my son followed in my path. And, and for a number of years, I said, I helped kill my own son, but in hindsight, I didn't, the disease of addiction did, but I'll never forget having to go back. And when Shannon saw me, she had a glimpse of hope that they had the wrong kid and she knew instantly. And I will never forget that scream. It's burned in my soul forever. Um, and then the next phone call I made to was to my sponsor. And immediately there's people at the hospital and we're trying to get the other kids to come in. And uh, this is a book I wrote called From Dope to Hope, but I wanted to read an excerpt. And this is at the hospital. My mom came with Tanner, who was my youngest son. I escorted him into the room. How do you walk your son into the room where his big brother lies dead? He tears over his brother's body, triggered more shame in me. Tanner didn't deserve to hurt like this. I want us all back together, eating another meal of Portillo's with the whole family. I wanted to talk to Nick one more time. I wanted to tell him that God was stronger than drugs. I wanted a do-over on the past 30 years of my life. 
I wanted my family to be intact. I wanted my kids to be safe. And I wanted Nick to be alive. And, you know, that's not how it worked out. And, and the reason I wrote this book was the trials and tribulations of where addiction takes you and, and losing a son. And I went to a meeting that night and uh, I can remember it was a girl's first first meeting ever. And I yeah. kind of chimed in and gave her a little guidance and they were going around the room and I put my hand up and I said, you know, 12 hours ago, my son passed away from this disease. And people were shocked, A, that I'm at a meeting and talking, but afterwards a guy pulls me aside and he said, I don't know what power is in you, but you were more concerned about helping that newcomer come in and you just lost your son 12 hours ago. Mm -hmm. I said, that's what my son would have wanted me to do. And uh, we had his service on a Wednesday night. There was about 800 people that showed up, about 400 people knew just to support them. Now, when I was leaving the hospital, I got a call from Denise Crosby, a reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times, and they were actually doing an article on me we laid Nick to rest Wednesday night. That Thursday night, I was doing a big Narcan training event. This is five and a half years ago. And she said, Tim, we're going to cancel the story. I said, no, you're not. She said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going on with the training. I'm laying my son to rest Wednesday night. And Thursday, we're doing the training. Yeah. She said, why? I said, because if my son's friends would have had Narcan, chances are he'd be alive. He'd be alive so the yeah. next day in the newspaper, it said, anti-heroin crusader lose his son to overdose and unfortunately in my son's passing Nick kind of laid the groundwork for what I do today we had his service and the next day I did the Narcan training and CBS 2 News and Fox News were all there and it just kind of sprung from there and you know next thing I'm working in the treatment space in the nonprofits building and I did my book and I had a documentary on A&E called Dope Man and little Mackenzie was born what a lot of people don't know is just because you get sober doesn't mean you're not going to have trials and tribulations. <clears throat> I was in a relationship and had a child with a lady that had severe mental health issues, had cleaned out my house twice. I came back, everything was gone, fake orders of protection. And I finally said, I can't do this. And I divorced her. And the hardest thing was having a little child, but I needed to keep doing what I do. And I knew it wasn't good for Mackenzie staying in a relationship that was toxic. And I reached out to Jennifer Jimenez, of all things, because I wanted to build my speaking platform. I'm doing colleges. I'm doing corporations. I did yeah. 220 high schools last year. But it's difficult for me when a 16 or 18-year-old or 14-year-old young lady's walking up to me and talking about trauma or sexual abuse. I need a woman. Sure. And that's how I originally reached out to Jennifer and we went back and forth and literally when I flew to meet her in Florida for business, it was love at first sight. I'm in the That's middle awesome. of a divorce. Last thing I want is this. Yeah. But on the flip side, the greatest thing that has ever happened to me was Jennifer Jimenez walking into my life. Well, and I want to ask you more about that, but yeah. just, I just want to rewind. Number one, Tim, I mean, okay. First off, so many parallels in our yeah. story. Uh, you know, this is why it's so important for me. And I think for others to hear someone's story like this, because 
You know, I was always chasing the money, always thought the money was going to fix things. One thing I, I've got to rewind and touch on for a moment. Yeah. Because I think this is the type of thing that's going to set a lot of people free. You know, you were talking about trauma and, and thank God that's, that's talked about so much more these days, you know, because I think it really helps people and it helped me when I hear, okay, the root of all this is trauma. It, it helps me figure out like, okay, well, where did this really start? Because I know for me, I had buried this stuff so deep, you know, and, and in my own story, I mean, it kind of just came out in a moment of, you know, going through, I just kind of exploded out of me almost, you know, like I remembered this thing that had happened. Yep. And I need to say real quick that what you shared about being abused, I, I have sat across from so many men that think they're alone, that they're the only ones, kind of like our addiction, that they're the only ones that have experienced that. And I think that with the platform you have, sharing something like that is so, so important because I guarantee whether they come up to you after a speaking engagement or not, there are other men in the audience that have gone through the same thing. And that's probably a, a, a big uh, root of, of their, you know, addiction as well. So, um, I, I really appreciate you sharing that and, and mentioning that. Well, you know, I'm an open book and I'm constantly trying to learn, you know, I, I have no clinical background whatsoever. And in everything I do, it's a message of hope. If people need help, I kind of know where to guide and direct them. I always give them three options. Even if I represent a center call, talk to clinical, do this, but as I look at this whole treatment industry and 30,000 centers with nonprofits, faith-based, for-profit, nonprofit, all this, and then on the flip side, I'll ask, what do you do for trauma? Because you can deal with the alcoholism or addiction issue. Then you got to deal with the mental health, which could be anxiety, panic. It could be bipolar, schizophrenic, whatever. Then you've got to deal with the underlying trauma. And if you're not addressing that, you're dead in the water. So if you make all this kumbaya, send them out into recovery, life happens. Me being molested did not come back into my mind until I was in prison. And first time in my life actually went through the steps with Big Perk. Then it just hit me and I lost him. Like, my God, I remember it like yesterday now, this babysitter. And I went through the whole thing with Perk. And I had compartmentalized the whole thing and buried it. But, you know, there's so many buried things that subconsciously or subliminally people keep abusing alcohol or drugs to bury it deeper. And unfortunately, you have to pull all that up and work through it. But you have to have the right support with the EMDR or trauma or therapy or this. And there's so many different pathways. But there's so much kumbaya bullshit out there, too. Mm. It makes me sick. Yeah. You know, when I'm... I want people to get help. I don't want them to ever come back. I don't want them to struggle. You know, I'm, I'm dealing with, a, I got to be very cautious, cautious, a high profile individual that's made a ton of movies and we all grew up watching them. And I got called in to do an intervention and we met for four hours and he's been to numerous centers. And he said, Tim, you're the first guy that didn't come into my house and say, oh, X, Y, Z, sit down. Would you like a cup of water? He's like, hold on, this is my house. But he said, the thing you did is you just met me where we we're at. We talked, we shared, 
Um, you called me on my BS and, and I got him set up going into a program and I got to meet his agent and his lawyer and let them know what they're doing so they can stop filming for a while. And we just talked an hour ago, but he said, Tim, you're the first person that's ever just shot it at me the way it is. And mm. that's what I do. You know, and it doesn't matter if it's a billionaire, it's a homeless person. I just want to offer hope to people. That's it. You yeah. know, but we've got to stop all this kumbaya BS because too many people are dying. I've been to 150 funerals personally. Wow. You know, when my son died, his best friend, Adam, who unfortunately, Adam started doing heroin with me and my son. And we kind of raised him since he was 12. And when I got out of um, prison, he was in treatment. Then when Nick died, he was in a sober home. The next week I went to speak at a meeting and my younger son Tanner was living with me and he said, dad, why don't we have Adam move in with us? So Adam moved in, plugged into recovery, 10 months sober. I shipped him to Florida to get trained up at the treatments and I was working at because I was opening one in Naperville and he was going to do the phone calls and kind of just guide and direct people and do the paperwork. And he lived right across the street from the center and two weeks later he called in sick. And his girlfriend said, hey, I'm going home to check on Adam for lunch. Five minutes later, a clinician ran in and said, Tim, get across the street with Narcan, Adam's overdose. And I said, quit messing around. She said, I'm serious. We ran across the street, kicked in the door. There's my second son laid out dead with a needle in his arm. And uh, you want to talk about, like my son, Nick, was in active addiction. Adam was almost two years sober. And God. I didn't see it coming. And and my God, it's in he became the big brother to my other kids, Max, Tanner, Abby, and then he dies. And it's like, man, when does this stop? I mean, it doesn't. So you got three choices. You're either going to get sober, you're going to die, or you're going to end up in prison. What do you want to do? Yeah. And, well, and I'm, and the in your, I'm the in-your-face type of guy, and I don't care. People like me or they don't. I'm not here to make friends. So, you know, and, and so I want to circle back around to that in just a second, okay? So... Uh, you were mentioning that you met Jennifer, uh, your yeah. wife, Jennifer, who I had the, the pleasure of having on the show recently. So congratulations Thank on, you. on getting married. And so the tour of two of you have been, uh, touring the country. Love it. During the country, you, you've been speaking to others about, uh, addiction and recovery. Let me ask you just, who are you typically speaking to and, and what is the core of the message that, that you're sharing? So that's a great question. You know, sure we do. Last three weeks ago, we're in Shelby, Indiana, Shelbyville, Indiana, 2,500 students between 11 to 18. We do community forums. May 1st, we're presenting 800 doctors in the state of Ohio. Um, six months ago, we were doing a law enforcement conference in Indiana to 1,200 judges, clinicians, probation, and police officers. Um, Sheriff's Association. I was also the guy that started the second Safe Passages initiative program in the country after Gloucester, Massachusetts, where a drug addict can walk into a police station and ask for help almost five years ago. So we speak to clinicians, treatment centers, medical personnel, lawyers, wealth management, risk management, employee benefits companies. Oh, wow obviously schools, colleges, the one thing that, that people look at me and they're like, how do you know this and learn so much? Well, I was a recruiter by trade. I, I, I've owned 15 businesses. I was in the technology space, in the management consulting space. I 
own three executive search firms, I've interviewed 10,000 people uh, face to face. And I just took a lot of my business knowledge and applied it to what I do. But one of the gifts I have is speaking. I can read an audience, I can go. I did a TED talk three years ago. I never practiced once. Wow. Jennifer put hundreds of hours. I walked up on stage and I did it. Because I, and I have a lot of knowledge and I can throw statistics in this, but I know what works and I know what doesn't work. Now, when you get a center, looking for master level clinicians, PhDs and addictionologists, things like that, I can guide and direct you to. But speaking, we're covering everything. We're getting a lot more into the corporate side because a lot of corporations, a thousand, five thousand employees, a hundred employees, okay. they go to the HR and ask for help. Human mm -hmm. resources doesn't know what to do with them. Right. People are afraid, are they going to lose their job? Explaining FMLA, but guiding and directing these corporations on what works and what doesn't. You know, we actually had a, 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 a big, you know, healthcare company, one of the blues, reach out to us and say, look, we don't know what treatment centers are good. So we do consulting. Our hands are in so many different variables. Um, but when we speak, it's powerful because I'll go 10 minutes, Jen will go, I'll go. And it's okay. not just sharing, sharing our story. I mean, we could be hitting on life skills, bullying, um, suicide. Jennifer can hit on eating disorders, obviously trauma, mental health, substance abuse, alcoholism. We can cover the whole kit and caboodle, but we leave them with solutions. Okay. So where most people come in and just share a story and leave, right. we do an event. We could be around for two, three hours answering questions. And wow. that's what we do. And that's what's unique. We're going in on the 8th to speak to a big hospital in, in Texas. So in the two weeks after, we're doing a couple colleges down there. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like, and I, and I do love what you're saying that it's like, you know, cause most of the time when you hear a speaker, it's, Hey, this is, uh, you know, this is my story and it's, it's kind of done. And I think that's great because I, and I think you guys are doing that in part, what you're, what you're doing in my mind is you're kind of putting a, a human face on this, right? It's very easy to separate yourself from, and Jennifer and I were talking about this. I think, you know, a lot of people still think like, no, I can't relate to this. Well, what about your kid that just got out of treatment? What about your husband that's drinking every night? You know, what about where, where you've struggled and maybe now things are, are kind of doing, you know, a little bit better. Um, but, you know, I think it's great that you're leaving them with some solutions. Cause if I'm sitting there and I'm listening to you or Jennifer speak and I'm saying, Hey, I can kind of relate to that, you know, and, and I'm able to ask you some questions and get some answers. That's, that's very helpful. Well, you know, it's like Jen's Ted talk wasn't a recovery talk. Right. And, right. and I mean, I just looked at it this morning, the things that 99,780 views in four weeks. Wow. Mine's wow. out three and a half years and I have like 60,000 views. <laughs> But mine was an educational talk on the opiate epidemic and the dark web and this. And hers was, you know, this filtered world and trauma and pain behind her photos and what's happening. 
we, we do programs educating parents on this. You want to know what your kids are up to. You need to get in their technology. Hmm. And parents don't understand what's going on within the technology through the bullying, through the drugs, you know, the legalization of marijuana. And well, everyone that smokes weed be an addict. No, but you take the 16-year-old kids, me and you, we're at a party, we're 16, we're smoking some of this high-grade weed. We might have had a couple beers. Our inhibitions are completely dropped and Jennifer walks up and says, here, snort this line, try this pill. If it's an opiate, if it's meth, if it's a benzodiazepine, Pandora's box is open. If yeah. they weren't smoking the weed in the first place, they never would have tried it. That's so true. yes, it is a gateway. And we need to stop blaming and, and prison reform. I could talk to you about that all day long. We need to start finding more solutions and we need to quit candy coating and baby and that stuff because I'm sick and tired of burying people. And, and yeah. people don't want to hear the truth. Mm. I had a mother about four years ago at one of my support groups, and I would split the room and loved ones in one room and people with addiction in the other. Okay. And there's about 80 parents, and this mom says, you need to quit picking on me. I need to assess you. And I stopped her cold in her tracks. I said, ma'am, you got me effed up. I said, what we need to assess is how quick I'm going to get into your house and do an intervention with your son. You just shared with this group that twice in the past week, you found your son OD'd in his bedroom. You don't even have Narcan in your house. We got up left. The kid was shooting up at home. Within six hours, we had him on a plane to treatment. And the kids, you know, stole sober to this day. And that mother says, if you wouldn't have talked to me the way you talked to me, my son probably would have died in my in his bedroom. Then. Now, I, I've got it. I've got to touch on this. You know, I think that what you're touching on, I think, is one of the most important lessons for anyone in recovery. And it's be direct. Yeah. It's be direct because, you know, my first sponsor and, and the guys that, that he kind of put in front of me initially when I got into recovery, there were some things that I didn't want to hear, but I needed to hear. And they, they shaped my recovery and they shaped my life. And, and I'll just say, you know, I haven't been, I've lost a lot of friends, not nearly as many people a, as you have. I mean, it's just 150 funerals. That's so just, uh, you know, unfathomable, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and it keeps happening. And so what, what I really appreciate that you're saying and doing, Tim, is look, you need to hear this. And I don't, if I hurt your feelings a little bit, I'm okay yeah. with that. Because it might save your life. It might save your, love, save your loved one's life. I'm going to just share a little bit. I just, it, people don't understand the messages I receive. And even with our nonprofit, Amanda Recovery Foundation, AMIRF.org, we have no employees. We give basically everything away. And money comes, unfortunately, a lot through memorial funds. Tim, thank you for working with our loved one. They passed away. Can we have money donated? But I received this email this morning from a gentleman that, oh, this is the wrong one. Basically, the gentleman had been sober 14 years. He relapsed, was drinking, and on February 19th of 2019, he's got in a car accident and killed a young girl. And now he's uh, took the life of a 17-year-old girl, and he's being sentenced. He's 11 months sober now, but this man will probably get 10 to 20 years in prison. And he's reaching out to me, asking me what to do. And 
Well, you know, I said, you need to go in and be a servant of recovery. Yeah. You know, nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And it's even when someone dies. I talk to parents or family members, oh. I, especially if it's an overdose, drug related. I said, two things are going to happen. You're either going to go into a depression you're never going to get out of, or you need to take that negative and turn it into a positive. And so many family members live through their dead loved one the day they die they live through and then they want to blame the drug dealer and blame this and blame that and i came up with an analogy it's interesting when people die from an opiate overdose they want to blame big pharma they want to blame the drug dealer all these drug and drug induced homicide laws but if a 26 year old kid kills someone god forbid drunk driving they blame alcohol but they don't go back to the parents when the kid was 14 or 15, letting him and his friends drink at home. They never do that. Yeah. We've got to quit blaming. And that's like with my son that died. I celebrate Nick's life. I cherish the time he was here. The disease of addiction killed him. I didn't. He knew what to do. He chose not to, and he died. And today it's just having balance in my life. Jennifer is not only a gorgeous individual on the outside, but inside. And Jen's really helped me to be a better person. And we have so many different variables, but we have date night, we have balance night. You know you know what she made me do the other night? We had to watch the Grammys and I had to turn my <laughs> phone off. And she liked I, I, I was there, man, I was watching. And it was cool. And, and then you, you know, I hate to jump on this bandwagon, but when you see Kobe Bryant and these yeah. nine other individuals die and everyone's talking about it, and I'm always on the other side. I looked at it and I'm, I live in Los Angeles, so it's right. everywhere. It's constantly on the news. But how many of these families are giving that much love to their, their family members that are in addiction right now or struggling with mental health or might be suicidal or having depression? Are, are we sharing this much love and compassion everywhere, you know? Um, and we got a bunch of other things going on. You know, we're doing the speaking, we're working on a, a docu-series TV show, we're doing interventions, we're guiding and directing people. You know, we both are activists for a better life recovery, an all-male program, 45 to 90 days, plus they have a mission for Michael, which is a true mental health program, residential, PHP, IOP, you know, they deal with bipolar, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenics. That's one of the reasons we went there is because we can offer both. You know, they have a true mental health. They have a true uh, all-male substance abuse program. So our life is amazing. Yeah, you guys are doing some pretty incredible stuff. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about this Kobe Bryant deal, and, and I was kind of looking at it from a different perspective as well, and it's just – you know, unfortunately, things happen like this and the love and all that stuff that's going on, like it, it doesn't last, right? But I, I think it's an incredible thing, you know, to think that, that if this guy passed, who was so loved and seemed like he was such a, you know, a great guy and a great, sure he was. Yeah. Uh, you know, great father and, um, you know, philanthropist and, and doing all these things, you know, but if this guy passed in it, it forced us to kind of look at how precious life is for a moment that's an incredible thing and I'm, I'm making the connection to your son and it's like man what a tragic story but at the same time how much has that fueled your efforts 
to help these other people and how many lives has that saved? You know, I think that's just, I think that's such an incredible way to look at that. I think we have to look at it that yeah. way. Well, it's taking your purpose, you're taking your pain and turn it into purpose. Into purpose. And, and uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And God opens the doors and we walk through them and people ask me, do I still go to meetings? I still go to four or five meetings a week. I mean, recovery is the most important aspect of my life. I go to men's groups. She goes to women's groups. We do a few meetings together. And I mean, we live together. We're business partners. We work together. We're always together. It's not easy. And you've got to be able to separate that. All right. Now it's Tim and Jen time, husband and wife, husband and wife and friends. And the, we had dinner last night. The phones are put away. So, yeah. yeah. But my life doesn't suck. Recovery doesn't suck. You know, put your hand up, ask for help. Watch the miracles happen. Get out of your own way. The best advice I can give anyone listening that is struggling is don't take any advice from the last person you drank or got high with. And that's yourself. Wow. That's incredible advice. Well, man, I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to wrap it on that. Thanks again for coming on with me today, Tim. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a, a pleasure and an honor, and I will see you very soon, my brother. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.